Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Chris Safarova, CEO of firmsconsulting.com and strategytraining.com. Welcome to another great session. We are here with Adam Merkel. Adam is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, keynote speaker, and entrepreneur. And in his prior career, he built a multi-million dollar law firm. Welcome, Adam. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate being here. Adam, to begin with, could you take us back and share with us your backstory? I know you are 18 years veteran of a legal profession, and then you reinvented your career path, and you even wrote a book about it that became a bestseller. And if you could take us back all the way to where you grew up and how you were impacted uh, by the way you grew up, and then share with us some defining moments thereafter that led to this moment. Thank you, Chris. I, you know, it's, um, I grew up as a, uh, I think so many of us do, um, just, just trying to figure things out in school. I wasn't a great student. I didn't have any um, great inspirations. I wasn't terribly passionate about, about what I would do in the future. Um, I loved sports. I loved music. I loved having fun. You know, I was curious. Um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't enamored with school because it it felt like I wasn't encouraged to to be um, to ask a lot of questions or to just not know things. You know, it felt it felt very much like a place that if you were smart and if you had the answers, then you were you, the teachers liked you and you were popular and all that. But if you didn't have all the answers, uh, if you had more questions than the answers, or or uh, or you just weren't net terribly inspired, even by what the teacher was teaching or sharing, you know, then it, it was a different. It was kind of a different road. Um, I say that as a preface to how I started my professional career, because in all honesty, when I became a lawyer, I didn't even uh, have a great deal of passion for that profession. It just seemed like it made sense to go to to get a professional degree, to get a graduate degree, and be able to um, earn earn money. You know, earn more money. I before I went to law school, I was a, two years for me. What I spent as a middle school English teacher in the city of New York. I grew up in New York. I grew up in a little suburb of Manhattan called Queens that people some people know of, and um, and it was it was in. Doing, doing a series of jobs and, and things that weren't paying very well, that were not, you know, not really, again, not something I was terribly enthusiastic about. It was, it was through those series of jobs that I realized I just, I just needed to go figure out how to make money. I mean, I wish it was more um, elegant than that. It was more inspirational than that, but it, it really wasn't. Um, and I don't remember learning in, in high school or even when I was at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst where I was studying English, I just don't remember there being a whole lot of conversation and a lot of guidance, frankly, about career and 
career paths and career choices and and what what might you do in your career if you reached a bit of a of an inflection point of a fork in the road or a dead end even you know what do you do in those situations there just wasn't any sort of training that i recall or guidance uh in in those areas so um I did go to law school, went to St. John's University in Jamaica, Queens, New York. My wife and I, we got married a couple of years after college. We met at, at UMass Amherst and, um, and we started having kids. In fact, we had two kids while I was in law school. So I was, I was ready to just get out in the world and start you know, doing what I think a lot of us do in our, in our livelihoods, our professional uh, livelihoods is really just about at the beginning, uh, making our way, uh, creating, you know, carving, carving a path in the woods, you know, through the, through the forest or whatever, um, without a lot of guidance and hopefully earning, earning well, earning decently well as, uh, as we go along. Um, I, I was pretty good at that. So, you know, fast forward into my, my legal career, I passed the bar exam in New York and in New Jersey, the first time out, um, which was surprising uh, even to me um, because I wasn't, I wasn't again, a great student, but, um, but I studied hard actually for the bar exam. So I, I did, I passed, uh, got out and, and opened up my own firm. I started on my own. Didn't, uh, I had a couple of people that, that I, I knew I could sort of call and count on maybe to uh, refer some business, other lawyers that became mentors uh, to me, which was so important early for me. And, um, and I became really successful at that work. I, um, I maybe get into details of some of it later, but I, I refer to myself now as like a professional warrior. Like I was a prize fighter. I would get paid to get in the ring and, and fight. And often I would have multiple, you know, multiple fights going on simultaneously. As many lawyers know, when you're a litigation attorney or a trial attorney, it's just you're going from one battle to the next, you know, one, one war to the next war. Um, and, and I was pretty well, I was okay with that for a, a number of years. And then sort of 10 years into an 18 year career, um, and as you said, I, I retired some years ago. Um, I started to wake up in the morning and I would put my feet on the floor and I would feel something that, that was really odd. And I, maybe some people that are listening to this or watching this can relate to this. Um, I would just feel like I didn't want to get out of bed. Some days I would feel anxiousness and, and even dread if I'm being entirely uh, candid about it. And uh, I ignored a lot of those feelings because at that point, my wife and I, my wife was a teacher then, uh, we had four children. We had bought houses, cars, you know, all the usual stuff, right? Um, when you when you start earning money, and had debt, and um, I just realized there was just, you know, I just had to do what I had to do, you know, like that was it. I didn't have to be happy about it necessarily, um, but I had to protect and provide for my family, and I ignored it for a bunch of years. This feeling in the morning, this weird, uh, and I, I had other symptoms too. I would. I would be in the middle of the afternoon sometimes and feel um, like so tired that I, I could take a nap, but I didn't, of course, take a nap. I didn't even think it was possible to take a nap. So I just drink more coffee, you know, have have some sugar or whatever it might be. And that went on for a while until on a Saturday morning when I was supposed to be at our son's baseball game, 
I ended up in the hospital. I was lying in the, on a gurney at Freehold Medical Center, Freehold, New Jersey, where we were living at the time. And I had electrodes stuck to my chest and my, my fingers, the tips of my fingers, Chris, were numb and tingling. Um, can almost feel that sensation even now as I'm talking about it. Um, I was sweating profusely and my heart was racing so much that it felt like it was beating on the outside of my body. And my wife was standing next to me as well. And she was pale, like a ghost, just scared look on her, on her face. Um, and I, I was seriously questioning in my mind whether I was going to ever see my kids again, whether that I would see them that day. And, you know, um, I was frightened, but I was also feeling so agitated. Like I was just so upset with myself that, that I don't know, I'd let it get to this point or whatever this was. And, and that I was making my wife so afraid. Um, the doctor came in, fortunately, it didn't last that long before the, you know, physician came in and said, look, Mr. Markell, your heart is okay. Not no issue with your, with your, you know, having a heart attack. At which point I began crying. <laughs> my wife's crying. I'm crying. So I don't remember what he said exactly after that it, until he got to the point where he said to me, what you're experiencing right now is, is called a panic attack. Is it so you, you're, you have high level of anxiety, probably because you haven't been sleeping well and you, a lot of coffee and you're in a very stressful job and all that. Um, he says, so that's what's going on. You know, you probably need to just take a look at your life a bit. And I didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> I walked out of the hospital that day holding my wife's hand and I just felt honestly grateful. Really, um, I said, thank I think I said, thank you, God. I walked outside and looked up at the sky and I, I just felt like I'd been given um, a break, like a, a ch another chance somehow. And I didn't, of course, know what to do with that. And we can talk about the next, the next phase and, and all that. But, but I, I left the hospital that day and I knew that, that some things needed to change for sure. And, um, and I didn't know exactly where to begin. Um, so a couple of years ago, just a couple of years you know, before now, I, I, I talked about that story on, on a TED stage. I gave a TED talk where I, I shared this anxiety attack, this panic attack. And I was really quite moved by the number of people that got in touch with me, you know, through the website, you know, reached out on social media and stuff to just say that they could really relate to that, to that happening, that they'd, some of them had things like that happen. Um, and, and one woman in particular, I remember this woman, Denise, she, um, she's the CEO of a hospital and, and she got in touch with me and she said, you know, we're, we're just, we must be brother and sister here because I was in the hospital just last week and, and the same thing, you know, happened. And by the way, when that happened for me, that's now 12 years ago, 12 years ago. So two years ago, when I gave this Ted talk, she, she got in touch with me, this woman, Denise, and she said, you know, I had the same thing happen and I would love to talk to you about it. And, um, and I said, I would happy, you know, be very happy to speak to you about it and did in fact, um, get on the call with her. And the first question I asked her was a question, you know, that I knew the answer to that's what lawyers do. We only ask questions we know the answers to. Right. Uh, so I was still practicing. I was still being a lawyer uh, at that moment. Uh, and I said to her, well, who have you told about this 
this panic attack that you had, or as my wife likes to call it, uh, we joke about it, call it a fake heart attack or a fart attack, you know? And, and she said, of course, what I knew she was going to say, which was nobody. And I knew that because when I had this happen to me, you know, 10 years before that, um, I didn't tell anybody because I felt all the shame and I felt like I was weak and I felt that it wouldn't help me. <laughs> Basically, it wouldn't get me anywhere with law partners or with a judge or my adversaries. I mean, like, who was I going to tell? I'm a professional warrior. Like, you can't tell people that you're weak or that you have vulnerability or any of that, I thought. So uh, so I'll, I'll pause the story here. I'll just say I told her that if I knew to, you know, back then what I know today, it would have been very important that I that I shared with people around me what had occurred. And I suggested to her that she share this with her leadership team, with the senior leaders around her that she worked with, you know, all that. And she pushed back. She was pretty resistant to that idea, but I was pretty persuasive also, which I can be at times. And, um, and ultimately she agreed and, and she did. She had a conversation with her team about the fact that she'd ended up in a hospital, not that hospital, by the way, it was a different hospital, uh, in the emergency room and had this, this event. And, um, and what she told me afterward about that meeting was just phenomenal. And she, her, her relationship with her team changed dramatically. She'd known a lot of these people for many years, and yet she never really felt like there was such uh, trust and, uh, and connection as, as she felt when she was transparent with them about what was going on in, in her world, in her life. And then they became very transparent and honest with her, not only about you know, what they thought, but, but what was happening in their lives. And I think that's, you know, in the world that we're living in right now, people are, are exhausted. Um, my heart, my, my fake heart attack, my, my panic attack, I think was really brought on by being uh, de depleted, by being overwhelmed and exhausted um, with everything and, uh, and not knowing how to take care of myself. And, and ultimately, I wrote a book, as you said in the, the beginning, I wrote a book called Pivot, which is a, a story of my change in, in my career path, uh, a personal and professional reinvention. Um, and that was my first book. It was a bestseller back in 2016. Um, obviously, a very important subject for today. And since the pandemic, the word pivot has been used endlessly. I wish I was only paid a penny for every time it's been used. Um, and then more recently, uh, just in February, came out with a book that's called Change Proof, leveraging the power of uncertainty to build long-term resilience. Because in my own pivot, what I realized today or several years ago when I began researching um, how it is that we become more resilient, how it is that we deal with the onslaught of work, of pressure, of stress, et cetera, um, I, I realized that resilience was really the unsung hero in my pivot out of the work that was that was really killing me, um, and resilience is, is really the the topic that is is more is the bigger topic of which the the pivot principles are a, are a subset, and and not the other way around where I had a chapter in pivot that was about resilience, but but now I I've, I fully realize that um, in the world that we're living in right now with so much exhaustion, so much burnout uh, that's that's there, and people feeling. Um, 
in many ways um, so out of control with so much uncertainty that the thing that we we must be thinking about and what I learned along the way, and, and that's why I'm here to be able to even talk to you about this today, is how it is that, how, how do we create resilience mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, um, so that we don't have to end up either having these incidents like the one I had or worse, because, you know, the doctor said to me that day when I left the hospital, he goes, you know, you're lucky, Mr. Markel, because not everybody that comes in here with your symptoms actually leaves. So that's a, a kind of a long answer to the question of where, where it all began for me, you know, and, and takes, takes us a little bit to the present moment as well. Adam, I'm so glad that it wasn't something serious, that it was just something that took you out of your life of being barely content with your work, or maybe even life of quiet desperation. Which one would you say it was? Mm. Well, I think the, you know, the, uh, that statement that everywhere people live lives of quiet desperation, I think is true. I think so often we don't speak to anyone else about, about these um, insecurity or these uncertainties in our lives that things that we'd not you know we're not sure of i didn't have anybody i didn't talk to anybody i had plenty of people i could have talked to i chose to keep those things to myself because i thought it wouldn't be advantageous it would be foolish even could be career suicide or you know professional suicide people that you are not that you're not uh you know like a superhero or that, you know, that you have any vulnerability. And so I think today, more than back then, 12 years ago now, um, I think those conversations are more, are more prevalent, that people are more open to them. And yet, you know, the, uh, the saying that the more things change, the more things stay the same. And I think a lot of people today are, are not, uh, still feeling all that empowered to share with other people, especially at work, how they're really doing. And, and so to me, um, you know, that, that level of, of self-awareness and, and honest transparency with other people is, is vital. It's one of the things I learned in that experience. Adam, and by the way, I also had a similar experience. In my situation, it wasn't as... Uh, light. It was something that I had to really work to fix, but I was also thrown out of my life by a health situation. I wonder when you look back, so when you were in that hospital room, maybe even, and you looked back, you, you probably to some degree knew that if you made some changes, maybe you would not be there. And I wonder what advice would you give to people listening or watching now who are also can relate to that feeling that you had every morning waking up and during the day and what should they do differently so that they don't wait for that moment where life will knock them by the head with a brick and hopefully not in a way that they cannot recover from. Yes. You know what? Maybe we'll chunk chunk that down. And, and I'll start by saying that the thing that, that I didn't know then, um, or, or that I was mistaken about was that I thought that I could sort of 
just work my way through anything. I could just, just the answer to everything was sort of tenacity. The, the answer was to never, ever quit. It was to be on guard. I was a lifeguard for a lot of years. Early in my life, I tell a story on, on this, in this uh, TED Talk. I start with this lifeguard story. In fact, this book, this book, Change Proof, this starts with a, a story at the beach where someone is being, being pulled out away from the shore by a rip current and a rescue that happens at the beginning um, because it's a metaphor for how it is that, that often we, we deal with change. And for me, I was always one of those people that would deal with change by, by swimming against any resistance, meaning I would fight any resistance. And I felt like I could outperform or outfight any resistance. And that's, you know, it was foolish, honestly. It was just not wise to think that that was even possible. But when you're, when you're young and you have a lot of energy and you, you, you feel like, you know, you have to prove something, you're proving things to the world and to others, et cetera. You know, I think, I think that's not an unusual way to think or way to be. But what I now understand is that that's a recipe for exhaustion. That's a recipe for the kind of depletion that will lead to physical, mental, emotional, and even spiritual uh, upheaval in your life, challenge that, that's very difficult to deal with. Um, so when I think about what's most important today and what would have been most important when I was much younger, it's, it's that I have to redefine what it means to, to, be, to be able to perform at my best or to have my highest capacity to be able to, to be um, the best I can be. And, and to do that, I have to be resilient. I, I, that's what I know now that I didn't know then. And then when we say, okay, what is it, if you have to be resilient, what does it even mean to be resilient? And, and that also is a challenge because for me back then, I would have said resilience is about how I I stand back up after getting knocked down. It's about my ability to just keep going forward, no matter what, the wind in my face, the rain, the snow, just, just keep moving forward. That, that's probably how I would have defined resilience. And that's how many people define it to this day. I, some years ago, I began researching the topic of resilience and now We've conducted case studies with almost 4,000 people, 4,000 business leaders from all over the globe, everything from a Fortune 50 entity to startups and many, many organizations that are you know, in between, vastly in the middle. And lots of people think of resilience almost like Rocky you know, from the movie, Rocky, right? That he just... Take the punch every single time you take the punch, you get back up. If you get knocked down, you keep moving forward. You're able to bounce back from setbacks. And, and what I now understand, having done this research and in my own experience, is that resilience is not about how we bounce back. It's actually about how we bounce forward. It's not about how we endure life's challenges, adversities, uncertainties, but actually how it is that we leverage that uncertainty for our growth, how it is that we uh, 
and, and in order to do that, we have to have recovery. That it is a part of our daily routine, our moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day routines uh, that we often refer to as rituals. But we have to ritualize our moments of rest and recuperation and regeneration and recovery in order to be stronger for the for the the next moment and the moment after that. And that's what people don't really understand about resilience that we have been able to discern and, and learn. And now we teach and, and we share with other folks, which is that to be resilient, we have to have a, a system of recovery, systematic recovery. And, and we know this to be true in, in athletics, right? That's a good example of what it looks like that no one would ever expect a, an Olympic marathon runner to run a marathon, perform at their best, and then do it again 10 minutes later. And yet we go from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting. We go from sales call to sales call to sales call. We go from strategic you know, conversation to strategic conversation and on and on and on all day long, often without breaks. And the breaks are sometimes very limited. And yet we expect that somehow or another we'll be at our best that our capacity won't fall off, that we'll be productive, that we'll be happy, that we'll feel healthy, that our bodies will perform, continue to perform well, that our bodies will continue to support us. And that is, it's just not, it's not accurate. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a paradigm that is old and outdated and needs to be replaced by something new. And that's in part why, why, uh, we produce this book, Change Proof, and why I speak uh, publicly, give keynotes, and deliver workshops to organizations all over the world to talk about this new paradigm and exactly what we do to create those uh, moments of of rest and recovery, um, because that's ultimately you know where we have to where we have to move things to an action point. Like, what are you going to change? And and often it's it's definitional. It's you know, we have to change our, our, our mindset around change itself, around how it is that we recover from, from change or disruption or uncertainty, and what that recovery actually looks like in a, in a very granular uh, level, at a very granular level. Adam, this is such an important point. So I want to make sure that our listeners and viewers really internalize it. And I think you have such an incredible story that you share about your time as a lifeguard, your first year and um, this beach of 100,000 people and what happened and then what changes were implemented. Maybe you could share it with us now. Sure. <laughs> I was 19 years old when I started on the beach and it's, it's a place called Jones Beach, which is the south shore of New York's Long Island for people that might be aware of that. It's a... Um, it's a crowded beach. Let's put it that way. On a, on a Saturday or a Sunday, because of the folks that came in from the city of New York, five boroughs and the buses and cars and stuff, we get we would literally get 100,000 people on a, about a half a mile square piece of sand. And it's the Atlantic Ocean. It's very beautiful. The waves are very strong. They break right on the shore. And there's rip currents, riptides that are constantly around and they move. People don't realize that often, not in the same place all the time, because it depends on the changing conditions of mother nature. 
the sweep of the ocean, the storms that come and go, uh, the way the, the, the sand cuts down, we call that, that area, you know, right up where the sand and the water meet is the, called the berm of the beach. Um, the wind, everything is the tide, everything is changing. Um, and, and on that particular beach, when I was just getting started there, my very first summer, um, the lifeguards communicate with whistles. In fact, I still have my lifeguard whistle right here um, for anybody that might be watching this, I'll hold it up. So this is my original lifeguard whistle from 1987, I think, 86, 87. And, um, and we would communicate one whistle to get somebody's attention, get, you know, a patron or another lifeguard's attention. Two whistles meant we were going to be in the water making a rescue and three whistles, which we would never hear. Um, three whistles meant that someone was submerged, like somebody was under the water and we couldn't see them. And we were afraid that they might be drowning. And on this particular day uh, in July, my first year, I heard three whistles and we ultimately, um, when, when being directed by the captain of our, of our beach, um, we, we started to search for somebody in the water. We have a protocol for searching, um, which we did for more than an hour, meaning we cleared everybody out of the water and we formed a, a line, 20 lifeguards and, and dove down in, into the ocean um, in a straight line together and came, you know, came up at the same time virtually and continued to search for somebody for more than an hour and it was devastating um, when, when at the end or around that hour mark, uh, the, the head lifeguard, you know, called us out of the water and said, it's not a search and rescue anymore. It's going to be a search and recovery uh, because this person is, is missing. If the person did in fact go down, you're not always sure. Uh, people always point and they say, well, I saw him there and, and he was in the water, you know, and, and in this case, we knew for sure because his family was there. It was a young man in his twenties and, um, and it was absolutely devastating and brutal to, to witness. You know, we were, we were blue. We were, you know, from being in the water, water was cold and, and we came out and, and it, it just, we felt so terrible um, and saw this family on the beach that were, that were just grieving. I mean, it was just, it was awful. And, when, when we had to um, get back up in the lifeguard stand and reopen the beach that day, it was quite an astonishing thing. I mean, as soon as it was over, there were a lot of people that were waiting to get back in the water and we had to get up and protect them, get up in the lifeguard stand and look after them, hopefully better than, than we had done already that day. Um, and, uh, and our lifeguard captains told us then that, you know, he would never, ever again see anyone go down in our water. He told us that, that in fact, we had to make the save, that what was required from us was that we make the save or die trying. You never, ever come out of the water again without that person. And that was the mantra for us at that beach. Um, I, I use that story often at the start of a keynote because, you know, when I, I tell it from the, from the point of view of it happening, you know, right in the moment, um, 
right to the even even to the point of blowing these whistles <laughs> to start. Um, and um, and what I use it for is really to talk about how we as a lifeguard crew had to become resilient that day and and continuing that summer and what we did differently, what we had to change because we were often working for hours in and looking at that water, staring at the water, staring into the sun. And, and at a certain point, you just sort of get blind spots. You just can't see very well anymore. You're, you're just tired and you're, you can't focus in so clearly when you're, when you're depleted and you're tired. Um, and we just didn't know it at the time that that's what was happening. So the captain and our crew, we, we made some changes that summer and we started to spend less time in the stand. We would have more frequent breaks during the day and we would, we would be toggling, which is the word I use for it now. We call it the toggle principle, toggling back and forth between being very, very focused and concentrating for a period of time on what we were there to do. And then we would take breaks and rest, rest our minds, rest our bodies, rest our, our you know, even our spirits, really, because it was it was very um, emotional experience to be saving people's lives. And and they were, you know, scared often. And 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 the whole the whole experience just was, you know, intense. So we needed these breaks and we were 20 lifeguards, but we sort of divided up and we would work 10 at a time, 10 at a time, most of the time. And um, I ended up working at that beach while I was a teacher. When I went back to law school, <clears throat> and even a little while after that, as we started, my wife and I having kids and stuff. And so I worked there seven more, uh, I worked there seven summers total. Um, and after that day that happened, that devastating day, we never lost anybody again, Chris. Nobody ever went down that we didn't find, that we didn't recover uh, alive after that. And, and to me, you know, it was really, really important uh, later, in, later in my life. Like I'd forgotten a lot of that as I became a lawyer and, and just started to almost adopt that same philosophy of my captain that said, you know, you just make the save or you die trying. It was very, I took that to heart so much. And, and what I didn't take to heart was the other part. So I, I had focused at that moment on, you just don't quit. You just keep going. And no matter what the conditions, no matter how hard it is, you don't leave anybody out in your water again. You don't let anybody go down in your water. And that's how I looked at my clients. That's how I looked at my job as a father, as a husband. And it was exhausting because I forgot the other piece of the lesson at the beach, which was that you have to have these important intermittent breaks, these intermittent times for rest and recovery and recuperation, or you cannot perform well. And, and that part I forgot. But then later on, I, I remembered it, you know, like I said, after many years later and after a, this trip to the emergency room, I started to think differently. And those were the, you know, the changes that I made. And I'm wearing a shirt today. Again, for people that might be watching this, uh, you might not see it, but my shirt has four words on it. And, uh, you know, I left the hospital with that heart, that, you know, panic attack I'd had. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to change. 
I just knew that something really did need to change. And um, one night when I was having difficulty sleeping and I often would have some difficulty falling asleep. And, and sometimes if I got up in the middle of the night, you know, I couldn't get back to sleep. I don't know if you can, you know, all relate to that, but I think a lot of people can today, you know, there's some anxious feelings that come in the middle of the night. Sometimes I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what to do. So I just, I had to watch TV. I couldn't be alone with my thoughts anymore. Um, and I, I was watching this movie, Jerry Maguire. And I had seen that movie years ago with my wife. And I love that movie. It's one of my favorites, you know, with so many great lines, right? You know, show me the money, right? That's that one. And uh, you had me at hello. And uh, um, my wife and I, we like to kid about the, the line that says, you know, where Tom Cruise says to Renee Zellweger, you complete me. <laughs> You know, it's like I said to my wife one time, do I complete you? And she goes, no, <laughs> just looked at me, said, absolutely not, um, which made sense. You know, it's I don't know that it's anybody's job to complete anybody else. Right. We're working on we're working on ourselves and and I don't even believe any of us are incomplete. So I think we're all good. Just we're all uh, we're all worthy and all that good stuff. But there's a point in the movie at the end of the movie where we get introduced to Jerry's mentor. A guy um, that you may remember, he's in this old office and he's got a, a blue suit, old seersucker suit on. And he's uh, in back and behind a desk and there's a name plaque on the desk that says his Dickie Fox. That's this guy's name, Dickie Fox. And Dickie Fox says to Jerry something like, you know, I've failed as much as I've succeeded. But I love my wife. And I love my life. And I wish you my kind of success, he tells Jerry. And when I saw that, when I was listening to that, those, those words that night, I knew I could just go to bed. I turned off the TV and I went to sleep and I slept like a baby. And I woke up the next morning and I put my feet on the floor, Chris. And I was expecting to feel that same familiar feeling, that anxiousness, even though I knew what it was now, because I'd been to the hospital, I knew I was just having an anxiety, you know, anxious reaction or whatever. I put my feet on the floor and instead of feeling that, words came out of my mouth, like inexplicably, I said something out loud that I didn't expect and, and just blew me away. And I said, I love my life. I, those four words that are written on my T-shirt here um, were the four words that came out of my mouth. I couldn't even catch them before they escaped. It was just like, really? You do? And I wasn't, I wasn't sure, but I also wasn't questioning it. It just felt right. And it felt great because I felt like even though my life was, was not easy at that time, it didn't feel easy. I felt like there's so much that I'm grateful for. I'm so thankful to be alive. I felt so thankful that I got to leave that hospital that day. And then I got to kiss and hug my kids and read them bedtime stories and, and have dinner with that. Like there was so much that I was grateful for that I did love my life no matter what. And I think that's the key, you know, that, that, um, that is so missing, I think in, in, in our, in our lives often, and we, we just aren't in gratitude enough of the time that would be that 
way to offset, to harmonize where we have challenges. And so when it comes to my own resilience today, you know, and I teach this to, to organizations and, and leaders all over the all over the world, I talk about it doesn't have to be that you take a sabbatical. Yeah, I mean, sabbatical is fine. You need a week off, take a week off. You know, we have rituals. We can ritualize everything from, you know, 10 seconds to any length of time. You know, as it turns out, the sweet spot for for rituals is usually sort of 10 to 30 minutes. But but this one ritual of saying I love my life at the start of the day when I put my feet on the floor every day now for 12 years takes a few seconds. And, and when I get myself in a, in a bit of a, you know, a state sometimes in the middle of the day or whenever it happens, you know, just stressed by whatever's going on, I can pause and, and ask myself, you know, wh what, what will make me feel better? What, what, what can I, I do in this moment to recover or to feel some, some regeneration of my energy even while I'm feeling so stressed? And then I can choose to simply say those words out loud. I love my life, no matter what. And no matter what's going on, I, anytime I get caught in the riptide of fear, doubt, or worry, I can say those words and, and feel better in the moment. And, and quite honestly, Chris, I don't know that there's anything that's more important in our lives than to just get this moment right. I get it that there's the next moment and the next one. If we're lucky, we get a lot of moments, right? And the ones that have passed are already gone. There's no energy to them. They're dead. But in this moment that's fully alive, we have this amazing opportunity to just think rightly in the moment. And when you can do that, when you can cultivate the right thought and get the moment right, then whatever the past has been, whatever mistakes, whatever issues are made right in the moment now, because we got this moment right. And that's that's one of those small but important ways that we increase our resilience. Adam, and can you tell us about this journey from that moment in the hospital? And then how did you pivot your career? Because in your situation, it wasn't easy. You had four children, you had a spouse. So it probably was a challenging journey to do that. It, it was, and uh, that's the book Pivot. <laughs> At the risk of sounding self-serving, there's a lot in there about the, the little steps um, because I'm a big believer in, in a step-by-step, small-step process to creating any kind of transformation. The only thing that we have to fear, I believe, Chris, other than fear itself, is the status quo. That things that stagnate or stay the same are not what, what is evolutionary uh, in our world. Everything, everything is meant to evolve. That's what the na nature of nature is. That's what the universe is all about. It's evolution. And evolution is about change. Change is the cosmic law for evolution. It's the cosmic law for manifestation. Things must change. If things stay the same, they stagnate and ultimately they disintegrate. It's called entropy. And that's also a natural state that things do eventually disintegrate. We see that. Um, but if we are looking to delay that or, or give ourselves more time to do the things we want to do in our lives, help the people we want to help, love the people, you know, every as, as many people as we possibly can, 
then, then we cannot let things stagnate. We cannot, we cannot allow entropy to occur. And, um, and so for me, um, I believe that the way that you break the status quo is by simply committing to, to small steps, tiny little changes. You know, so often it is organizations will bring me in to talk about change itself. Again, this book, Change Proof, is a book about that because often people resist it. They, they will opt for the same, for what they know, because it's safe what we know. And what we don't know, what's unknown, what's uncertain is very dangerous to the way our brains are wired. So we have to overwrite that programming and consciously choose to, to seek out change, to embrace change, to embody it, to make it our friend, as Ram Das uh, once said. And, and if we can do that, then over time, almost anything is possible. I did not jump ship from my law practice. I had a lot, as you said, four children and, and a lot of responsibilities, uh, my wife and I did together, and, and clients and people that were counting on me. It took about two and a half years for me to pivot, fully pivot out of the law so that I could retire and be doing other work that was meaningful and was providing financially and, and in all ways that were required. Um, and it was that step-by-step -step, uh, process, which sometimes I, I liken to the example, I, I'm a visual guy. And, and so analogies that are visual really work for me. And I use the one of like dominoes. You think about dominoes. Often we see them set up one, one next to another, next to another, and they're about the same size. And, and it's remarkable. I don't know. There's probably you know, a world record for how many dominoes have been set up and knocked down, maybe a million or more, you know, and it's, and that's a great example of momentum, you know, seeing them one thing knock into the next and the next, but what often is misunderstood or, or just not understood about dominoes is that one domino not only has the capacity to knock over a domino of equal size and weight, but one domino has the capacity to knock over another domino that's slightly bigger than itself and slightly heavier than itself. And that's what's remarkable because, you know, starting with a domino that's like, and, you know, two or say three eighths of an inch uh, high that weighs about an ounce. If you set that domino up and another one and another one and another one after it, that's just one and a half times its size and weight, uh, by the time you get to the 28th domino, it's the size of the Empire State Building. And I have a video that sometimes I will show people that because we don't set up 28 dominoes and we're not going to knock over the Empire State Building, but, but we set up like eight dominoes. And the, by the eighth domino, it's four and a half feet high and it's 100 pounds. And we started with something that was teeny tiny and weighed almost nothing. And it just knocking over the next and the next and the next um, is the equivalent of a compounding effect. And that's the thing about small changes, that when you just start to make small changes, not only does it lead to another small change, another possible change, but it can lead to another change that's slightly larger than the last one. And that's how things compound. That's how you can get true transformation out of even the smallest change in, in, the, in the dynamic. You know, you change any input in a system and the output changes in some way, sometimes called the butterfly effect or the law of small differences. Um, 
But when it comes to organizations, when we think about helping people work, you know, the 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 employees, the the leaders in that organization to be more resilient, often we're talking about what are what is a process to create small change so that they can be mentally, emotionally, physically, and even spiritually more resilient than they are. And, um, and we typically start with an assessment to see what the baseline is. Um, in fact, your people, anybody that would love to just do what, what as I say, almost 4,000 leaders have done already, uh, and that is to take three minutes, and I do mean three minutes to answer 16 questions, they can go to resiliencerank.com, resiliencerank.com is the, uh, the place where this assessment lives. Um, and it's entirely free, by the way, it's not, no cost. Um, and three minutes later, you will have you will get a score in each of these four areas, because, again, what we know about resilience is it's not about endurance. It's about recovery. We know that you've got to create resilience now before you will need it in the future. It, the time to to practice and perform resilience is, is before you actually are required to or, or will need it. And that's, uh, you know something that is not conceptual it's it's a it's a, a thing that we have to practice and and perform um and and that ultimately resilience is is not one big sort of amorphous thing it's really mental it's emotional it's physical it's spiritual it's baked into these four zones um and we can have a different level of resilience in in each of those four areas so it's vitally important that we assess and know how we're doing now in this moment, you know, what, what's, what's it look like for us now resilience wise so that we can track our progress going forward. And that ultimately the goal is to create small changes in each of those four zones. So things that you can do to create more mental recovery, more mental resilience, more emotional recovery and more emotional resilience, more physical recovery and more physical resilience. And the same thing on the spiritual side, which is really just the, the things that we can't often explain in words, the things that we feel on the inside, the alignment and, and things we feel passionate about, uh, we call spirit or spiritual. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's often where we begin um, the conversation and the inquiry is with where we're starting from and then what small changes can we make? Because that's how I got out of the law. I, didn't do it in one big sweeping move. I didn't quit. Um, I just made a series of small changes, incremental, uh, you know, sort of, and then by, by six months in, a year in, those changes started to create a compounding effect. I, I started to see that there was a momentum to the work that I wanted to be doing that was different than the work I was doing. And then ultimately I found uh, the ability to not only resolve um, you know, the things that were tying me into the, into that work that I was doing, um, and, and to be able to transition into this new work. And I, I get asked often, uh, by lawyers and others, you know, how do I get out? <laughs> how do I get out? You know, kind of thing. And, and my answer is kind of sometimes, uh, confusing, I guess, because I sometimes say, you know, if, if I only knew when I was a lawyer, what I know now about how to be more resilient. I, I wouldn't have necessarily needed to leave the law. Now, I'm thrilled that I leave, leave, left the law because it's enabled me to do what I'm doing and I wouldn't ever want to be doing anything other than this now. Um, but the truth is I was un, 
aware and, and lacking in, in resources when I was practicing law. So now when I speak to legal groups, you know, bar associations, you know, trial lawyer associations, firms and, and the like, um, which is a small, you know, it's about 15, 20% of my, um, of my speaking uh, these days, but it's important speaking because often these are people who are dealing with very similar levels of stress that I experienced back in the day for me. And there's a lot of, uh, there's substance abuse issues, there's depression and anxiety and suicide. And it's not just among lawyers, by the way, because I, I speak with doctors groups, accounting groups, engineers, architects, you know, there are a lot of people who are HR groups all the time. They're just people who are, are really nearing burnout. And, and the signs of that burnout, again, are, are the usual suspects, you know, having trouble sleeping, uh, anger, agitation, complaining, substance abuse, feelings of anx anxiousness, anxiety, depression, um, marital issues or relationship issues, and, you know, and the list goes on, right? So I was just so unaware back in the, in the time, you know, I just thought, well, this is the price of success. Like, I just have to be bigger than this, right? I've got to be uh, tenacious and, 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 and keep going forward. And, and that was a recipe for disaster. I got lucky because I didn't have a disaster. I had a scare and that's quite different. Um, that scare was a catalyst, which was a blessing. Um, but I know a lot of people do end up with, with health issues and all kinds of things. And, and what I'm saying is those things are avoidable and it's not necessarily about the profession you're in there. It's really about how you, you create resilience for yourself and model it for others and, and even operationalize it if you're a leader within your organization so that you take care of people, you know, that you really have people's backs. Because that's what it was like for me at the beach. You know, we were a lifeguard crew and we could be successful after that, that first event, that tragic event. And we were successful because we really were there having each other's backs, as I said, giving each other those breaks and looking out for each other. And, uh, and that's how we were able to su succeed after that. Adam, and in this transition from being a lawyer to doing what you're doing now, what do you think was one thing that helped you the most to find something that you actually want to do? I mean, I was open. And, and I think, you know, when you read books and you, um, listen to podcasts and watch uh, YouTube, uh, you know, videos, TEDx, TED videos and things like that, and you have an open mind, then the combination of being open to change, right? Not, not thinking, oh, hey, listen, I have 18 years in a practice of law and I make a certain amount of money. I can't make a change. Like that's what lawyers tell me all the time. I've got the golden handcuffs, right? And whether they're golden or they're platinum or they're tin or whatever it is, you know, everybody's got a story about why they can't change. And usually it's this sunk cost fallacy. That's something that we, we talk about um, in, in some of the books I've written that often we just go, I have got too much invested now. I'm, I'm stuck. I can't, you know, unless I hit the lottery, unless somebody leaves me a bunch of money or whatever, you know, I, I have to continue to do this because I have people to take care of. Um, and I get that. I get the responsibility piece, but I also think that when you're open and, and you're willing to create space, which is something most people, you know, I had during the pandemic, actually, which is remarkable. I think a lot of people have left their jobs um, in part because 
during the pandemic, they had space to themselves. They had time. And I know there was a great deal of loneliness and I'm, I'm not saying it was all good at all, um, but there were very good things about it. And I think a lot of people had the time to really consider their lives and how they want to live and what's important to them. Where do they want to live? Um, all those kind of questions. And, and so when you give yourself that space and that time, um, you know, in the book, in this book, Change Proof, I talk about pause, ask, choose. It's, it's really important that we make this regular time to pause, to ask questions, and then to give ourselves an opportunity to choose. And if it's choosing to, to research or it's choosing to, to look into what it would be like to do something other than what you're currently doing, that's, you know, I think that's, that's a calling. You're called to do that. It's coming from the inside. Um, and, and as long as you're not in a rush, as long as it doesn't have to happen overnight or instantly, like so many of us want, you know, things to happen now. So instantly, if you're patient and you're willing to continue to explore uh, and you're open, you remain open, there's no question that you will be, you will find yourself thinking about things differently, um, exploring things potentially, making some moves, taking some actions. Um, you'll be inspired to make some choices, different choices, and that will change the game. It, will, it has to. Because again, the only thing that's, that we have to worry about is just doing, like not uh, embracing change and resisting it the way a swimmer, in, in, and that's why we use it as a metaphor in the book, the way someone who's stuck, caught in a, in a rip current, often tries to swim against the current to get back into shore because safety is you know on the shore. That's what represents their safety. And... And that is the surest way to become so exhausted that you go down that you can drown. When what you really have to do when you're caught in a rip current is one of two things, either change your, your, your uh, strategy entirely and swim sideways to the shore, perpendicular to the actual current, swim sideways, parallel to the shore to get out of the rip current. Or, and this is counterintuitive, just lay back on your, you know, laid back uh, float on your back and look up at the sky and and enjoy the ride because eventually that rip current will will release you spit you out and you'll have a little bit longer perhaps of a swim back to shore but you will not be fighting the current any longer and you will have saved your energy for that swim but so often it is that when it's change uh that we're talking about people just they swim against it they fight against it it exhausts them and, and ultimately um, they either quit, they stop fighting that change and they just go, you know what, this is, this is what I'm resigned to. This is what I'm, you know, have to do. And, uh, and I don't believe in that. I don't believe any of us are resigned to do anything. Um, and, and ultimately it's just a question of, you know, how do we cultivate better thinking for ourselves so that we can outperform the, the, you know, the, the, the challenge that we're facing to be more creative in, in finding, um, you know, a workable, a workable change that requires better thinking. And the one thing that our research has also suggested clearly is that, you know, to get better thinking, to get more creative thinking, to be more uh, it, it capable of critical thinking, we cannot be under stress. 
That's why we have to be resilient. That's why I have to work on our rituals for recovery because when we're exhausted, when we're tired, when we're depleted, we don't make good decisions. We make the worst decisions then. We're not able to think creatively or strategically when we're, when we're stressed. Those two things are, they're antithetical. Adam, thank you. We are getting close to wrapping up this session. I have two quick questions for you before we wrap up. First one is my favorite question to ask. What are two, three aha moments, realizations you had in the last few years that were transformative for your life or your career? Well, I mean, I've shared a few of those already. Um, you know, aha moments for me, really that I didn't need to, there's no limit to the number of things that we can do that we, in, that we can enjoy and that we can succeed at. Um, you know, I've had a lot of pivots in my professional life and um, thank goodness and, and knock on wood, I can't help but knock on wood when I say something like that. Uh, probably my, my grandmother's training or whatever, but um, I, I've been able to reinvent numerous times. And, and I think that that's not a skill of mine. That's just the fact that um, I'm willing, I'm willing to go there. And a lot of people are afraid to go there. They think maybe this is the only thing they could succeed at, or it'll be too hard, or there's too much risk. And, and that's just, that's just stories that are not true. They're not true. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think anybody needs to be miserable. I'm, I don't think misery is a requirement to success or, or to getting to heaven or any other thing that you want. Um, it's optional. We don't need to struggle. Struggle is optional. And, um, and when I realized that, when I started to understand that, I'm not, I'm not nearly as afraid of change as I was before. In fact, now I embrace it because I understand that what's in it is, is, is evolution, it's, it's growth. And that's what resilient people and resilient organizations come to understand that it's, that it's growth that's inside change. It's, that's what it's a catalyst for. It's always a catalyst for growth. And that's, that's probably the biggest aha, I would say that, that uh, you know, other than just understanding, as I said earlier, um, how you create resilience, because if we're, if we're working from a, an outdated paradigm or definition, then we can't, we can't do it any better. We're still playing, sort of playing it at it in the, you know, we're playing by, by old, an old set of standards, which doesn't help. And the last question before we wrap up, Adam, what is one thing you want people to do tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. differently out of this conversation with you today? Oh, you know what, Chris, I, I really would love it if people would think about, you know, maybe they'll, they'll take that assessment, you know, get their own resilience score. Uh, maybe they'll read one of my books, um, which would, which would be helpful because if they're not feeling like they're, they have the energy for the things going on in their life, they feel like they're, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're, you know, frustrated, whatever those things are. Um, to me, those are, those are signs, they're symptoms, just like I had symptoms of very similar symptoms. 
and there are solutions, but we need, in, we need to sometimes look outside of ourselves for the information and the inspiration even um, for some of those solutions. So I would hope that they would not just have listened and thought, well, this is interesting, but actually would take some form of action, whether it's to read a book, whether it's mine or someone else's, or to continue to, to listen to this show and other podcasts to gain in, you know, more, more and more insights, um, that they would discover what their own level of resilience is. So to go to resiliencerank.com is one way to do it, but I'm not the only uh, person or company that, that offers assessments relative to resilience. Um, so however they do it, that they find out a little bit more about their own resilience level and, and that they commit to making some small changes in how they routinely and ritually are recovering throughout the day, whether that's a 10 second recovery or it's 10 minutes or it's 30 minutes or it's something else that they are ritualizing their, their moments of rest and recuperation and, and, and rest restoration, because when they do that, they will be able to, to face any of these challenges much more effectively. They'll be able to think more clearly and, and ultimately they will, they will feel better. Um, and lastly, you know, as we said, gratitude is, is so powerful. You cannot overstate the, the value and the, and the importance of gratitude and gratitude practices, whether it's to take a gratitude walk or to have a gratitude jar. I, I have gratitude notes uh, all, all over my, um, all over my office. In fact, you know, I'm going to pull one out of this book right here that says those words right there. I am grateful. Um, I have it written on my shirt. I love my life. Cultivate gratitude, you know, in any way, shape or form that you can do it today, um, with people, with others, with your teams, with your family, you know, with, 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 with spirit, just create moments of gratitude. And if we do that, those moments are so powerful and they are truly transformational. So that would be the last thing I would recommend. I could not agree more related to gratitude. It's such an, a powerful emotion and it is a great way to transition from any negative emotion and then start changing things for yourself. So switching to gratitude is a lifesaver. Highly recommend it as well. Adam, this is a great place to end this session. But be before we do that, do you have anything else you would like to add or share? I don't think so. I, we covered we covered a lot today, Chris. So I'm I'm really great uh, leaving it there. Of course, as as always, people that are are leaders on teams that want to help their teams understand these things, some of the things we've discussed, uh, we're always open to people contacting us about our keynote work or our workshops and, and, and other uh, services, et cetera. And they can always go to adammarkel.com to share or find more uh, information about us. And, and if they have questions, I love it. People can connect with me on LinkedIn or in other social channels. I love the questions, happy to answer them. And as always, um, I, feel, I feel blessed to do this work, grateful that I get to, and, um, and, and always willing to share whatever it is that I've, I've learned or, or what research we've got with, with people that are interested. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, again for tuning in. Our guest today, again, has been Adam Markel. You can check out Adam's book. It's called Change Proof. And the subtitle is Leveraging the Power of Uncertainty to Build Long-Term Resilience.
and I will see you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.